Hello and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Nick Orvis, and today I'm here with Percy. Hey. And Todd. Howdy. And today we are going to be talking about Apocalypse World, the second system that we're going to be exploring on the podcast. So to kick us off, what is Apocalypse World? It was written by Vincent D. Baker and McGay Baker, published in 2010. Uh, the second edition, which we're playing, was released in 2016. The game has a post-apocalyptic kind of Mad Max vibe that explores what it means to survive in a world filled with danger of all kinds, from the environment, other people, from the psychic maelstrom all around us. Uh, essentially, the game works like this. Players at the table roleplay together and roll two six-sided die to determine the degree of success or failure of any given move they might make. The mechanics are left pretty open-ended and open to interpretation by the players and the master of ceremonies, which is what uh, both bakers call the dungeon master in this variety. Um, there's an emphasis on finding out what the characters are threatened by in the world around them and playing to see what happens when they're forced to confront that. Everyone at the table works collaboratively on building the characters and the world as a whole, which to me is really exciting. And the game favors groups who like to build off of each other and GMs who like to build stories in response to what players express interest in. A fun fact to me is that Apocalypse World is the basis of over 90 Powered by the Apocalypse or PBTA games and has kind of spawned its own genre uh, through this system of a lot of different other types of role-playing games. And you will certainly see some some more of those games if you keep listening with us. Sure. Well, you won't see well, them. It's a podcast. <laughs> but you'll hear about them. Astute. Yeah, I think the... This was maybe the first example of a really successful narrative focused role playing game. This game is pretty mechanics light and all of the game mechanics are reactive um, in that you say that you want to do something or you, you, you do something and then we roll to see how it resolves, which is I think true of every role playing game. But in this game, mechanics are really secondary and there are a lot of things that you could just kind of skip if you don't want to, if, if they don't work for what you're doing like the the focus is really on working together as a as a group to to build a story and i think this has created the the subgenre that this has created is games that are really focused on narrative and storytelling and role playing not that all tabletop role playing games don't involve role playing but <laughs> sometimes tabletop role playing games don't involve role playing <laughs> uh, sometimes it's just rolling 1000 uh, six sided die so looking a little bit more specifically at what the powered by the apocalypse engine and the the mechanics of apocalypse world are i'm going to walk through a little bit of sort of the basic game mechanics and then we're going to look at it in comparison to the d20 system and dnd's mechanics uh, this is not an attempt to hold a different game to the standard of D&D, which is not the be-all end-all role-playing games, but rather this is sort of a comparison to a really well-known game system and a transition from our D&D game to this new system. Um, so just wanted to say, this is in no way me trying to be like, D&D is the best and we should compare everything to that because that's not, not the case. D&D um, is great, but so are many other things. So in a nutshell, Apocalypse World uh, is a game where the players and the MC collaboratively create the world and the characters who inhabit it in a sort of session zero 
um, setting. So all of the players at the table are working together to create characters. Nobody comes in with anything pre-written. Um, you might come in having an idea of what playbook you want to play or what uh, the personality of your character is. But because you don't know anything about the world, it's encouraged to sort of come up with all of that together. You also decide, like, what kind of apocalypse was it? Is it a world that's completely flooded? Is it a, a desert world? Was there a plague of some kind? Um, you decide what resources are scarce, what resources are plentiful, what threats exist in the world. Um, and you also, in that sort of first session zero, decide what the dynamics and the relationships are between the characters uh, using a stat called history or Hicks, which we will talk about a little bit later. And you also, in your character creation process, decide what specific moves your characters have access to. Some moves change what stat you roll in order to do a certain thing to better suit your playbook's stats. Uh, some offer specific mechanics for running a character's settlement, cult, nightclub, what have you. Uh, and some offer interesting options for interactions with other players or with NPCs. Characters also have access to a standard set of base moves, some of which are oriented towards combat and some of which focus on interacting with other characters or gathering information. Uh, when you want to use a move in response to something that happens, um, roll 2d6 and add the modifier for the stat indicated in the move's description and the MZ tells you what happens. But there is sort of a sliding scale of success or failure, depending on what you roll. Uh, if you roll within a certain range, you might have sort of a mixed success. Um, you might get what you want, but it comes at a cost. Um, and you sort of negotiate that with the MC as it happens. These moves are sort of things that you, they're tools in order to accomplish a role-playing aim, but you're not necessarily playing the game in pursuit of using a specific move per se. It's just sort of there to augment, um, the options that you have as you, as you role-play. Now let's dive into some of these mechanics in detail and look at how they diverge from Dungeons and Dragons and the D20 system. Um, first of all, in Apocalypse World, the setting and the characters are created collaboratively and the MC is encouraged to go in with nothing predetermined. Instead, they're sort of there to listen to the conversation, uh, identify threats in the world everyone at the table has created based on their characters' backstories and personalities. And perhaps, like, perhaps they might come in with like, this is an idea that I have a sort of seed of what the world is, or they might come in with some kind of setting. Um, but you are sort of encouraged to follow the thread of what your players are interested in doing and what story they're interested in, in experiencing and telling. It is a very player focused game or uh, rather like a very player experience focused game. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting just reading through the game books um, the playbooks and the MC's move books and stuff. Um, there's kind of an adversarial tone that Vincent sets up against uh, the MC where he's like, don't come in with a pre-planned world. I'm not fucking around on this um, <laughs> is like a direct quote, which That's I a think line. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I think is just a really interesting uh, shift as someone who comes from a more D and D background where like, so like, the player's handbook is like for the players, but also half of it is for the DM. And then the DM gets their own separate book, which is like all about them. And this being a system that's like, hey, this is all about your players. And if you ever forget that, I'm here to remind you every five pages is an interesting tone to state in the book itself that hopefully permeates the gameplay. I think in this game... 
more so than in D&D. Like in D&D, the DM is playing all of the other characters and is representing the world. But I think in this game, because the game encourage you, encourages you to be so adversarial and the stakes just of the genre are really high. Like if you're ex- existing in a, in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, the stakes are probably always very high for your day to day. Because the stakes are, are so high in terms of just the, the world being actively antagonistic toward the toward the characters and the NPCs having a lot more reason to double cross people and screw people over and attack people at the same time as it's all very collaborative. There is sort of an adversarial relationship set up between the MC and the players while at the same time saying you are there to create the experience that they want. Mm hmm. I think it's interesting that the bakers talk a lot in the rule book about the MC making the players' lives interesting, um, which is very different from, I don't think they use the phrase, like, be fans of the players, which or of the they player do. characters. Oh, do they? Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fair. So I'm wrong about that. But I do think there's a... I think there's a qualitative difference between like make the players lives interesting and make the players like the hero of the story or something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, there's there's a couple specific instances where they talk about making things interesting um, where they'll then like put a caveat and say like interesting doesn't always mean good, but it doesn't always mean bad either. And like know and understand that that like interesting is interesting and that's not a qualitative thing it's not like a good bad thing i think actually that's a nice segue to the history or hicks mechanic so apocalypse world has this mechanic that essentially is a measure of how well you know somebody uh it's a measure of maybe how much time you spent together your relationship with that person um and it's called hicks uh which is short for history what I think is interesting about it is that it doesn't necessarily indicate how you feel about that person. And I think that that is really cool uh, a, from like a player agency standpoint. But also, for example, there are certain uh, playbooks uh, like the Battle Babe where the questions that you ask at the beginning of se- or at the end of session zero, you ask all these questions of other characters and then people at the table will chime in and say, I think that I'm that for your character. And you adjust your Hicks score with that character accordingly. Um, The Battle Babes questions are such that um, the person that they trust the most gets a negative Hicks score with them. And the person they trust the least gets a very high Hicks score with them, which I think is interesting and sort of reinforces that idea of the person that you like the most uh, is not necessarily the person that you know the most about. Although I guess trust and likability are two different things, which is also a a true thing. But um, yeah, I think that that is a a fascinating mechanic. And I think it is interesting to look at the way you turn character relationships into a stat that you add to a dice roll or or a mechanic that affects gameplay. Mm -hmm. I think there's something... Uh, really fascinating about the the gamification of the relationships and making the character relationships to each other specifically um, something that has a boon or a negative. Um, like I think that there's something really fascinating about, and also I think it's fascinating that um, the game books go at length about how these are. Um, asymmetrical relationships Mm -hmm. and so like 
I might know how you will react in a relation in uh, in a situation, but you might not know how I will. And I think that's really interesting. And like how you bring that into your role playing is really, really fascinating. Yeah, this is definitely a difficult system in terms of metagaming. Um, (laughs) Like, I think you have to be really intentional about separating your yourself as the player from your character and what you know about it because you're also you're privy to the discussion of you know somebody else at the table might say my character you know was abandoned by their parents as a child and then the apocalypse happened to them while they were an orphan and blah 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 all these things but your character may not know that um but you're at the same time working all of this stuff out at the at the table with everybody else and I think it's not explicitly stated in the rules, but I get the sense that this is a kind of system that discourages having secrets between players in part, because I think having secrets between players makes players adversarial towards each other. And this game already sets you up to do that in some ways. Um, so it's probably not great to to make that worse. Yeah, I, I do think that's a great observation, though, that the and this this is something that a lot of people have observed kind of anecdotally about any type of role playing game is the more intraparty tension there is sort of in the game, the more the actual players need to have like trust and open with and openness with one another. So like you said, Percy, I think this game does sort of set up the characters to end up in at least semi adversarial situations. And uh, that might be one reason, I think, to really lean on that system of creating stories together, getting everybody's kind of like secrets and so on out in the open for the players um, so that there is a degree of openness. And I think that kind of lends itself to the way that conflict resolution is put into this game. Um, So unlike uh, D&D, where you use your D20 and determine if something is like a failure, a success an abject failure or like a perfect success um apocalypse world and powered by the apocalypse games usually uh involve this sort of like degree of success sort of a threshold using the two d6 or two six-sided die system um typically uh when you're rolling your 2d6 you will add a stat modifier to it and in general anything one to six is kind of in the hands of the master of ceremonies. Um, a seven, an eight, or a nine will be a mixed success where like something good happens, but there's also a trade-off. And then a 10 or higher, and as you advance even more in your playbooks, a perfect 12 or higher gets you like super, super successful things where it's all in the player's control, which I think is really interesting, but it's all this mediation of like knowledge, um, what's good for the characters and what makes an interesting story. And so instead of just you succeed or you fail, we get these like, how do we mediate um, this success in a narrative way? Yeah, I think it's interesting that you're able to stop in the middle of a combat. Like, let's say you are one of your allies has fallen on the battlefield and you're trying to drag them out of the line of fire. You know, you you might be in a in a situation where you roll like an eight and the MC can sort of sort of stop this moment of story and say, okay, you can choose between, you know, you succeed in getting them off the battlefield, but you take a bullet or 
you know, you cover them enough that they can get away, but you get captured by the enemy or something like that. Um, so you're able to sort of step out of the active storytelling and, and decide the direction you're going to go together. Um, and I think the system leaves it pretty open for you as a player to say, well, you know, what if, what if this trade off or what if that, uh, as long as you're adhering to like the spirit of you have to do something, but it's for a cost. Um, and there are other moves where a mixed success, like there are a lot of moves that have to do with uh, reading a person or reading a situation or trying to see how much information you can glean about something just from looking at it or, or assessing it like the equivalent of like a perception or an investigation or an insight role. And it gives you a series of questions that you can ask. And the degree of success allows you to choose how many of those questions you get to ask. Um, so on a mixed success, you may only get to ask one on a complete success. You may get to ask two or three. I do think Todd that You've you've articulated something I do like about the game a lot and find fascinating, which is that what it actually swings a lot, depending on the result of your role, is who has narrative control. You know, the better the role is generally the generally the better the role, the more the player gets to gets to create the narrative that results and then in that kind of middling range usually the mc offers the player a choice of some kind and then like i think percy said if it's a failure then the mc narrates the thing entirely yeah that's yeah yeah. although i think it's also funny that the handbook pretty actively encourages mcs you know if somebody seems to think that something is going their way you are absolutely encouraged to twist that on them um, there is no, uh, for example, um, spoiler alert, I will be playing a hard holder, which is essentially like a landlord character, uh, in the, in the campaign, the hard holder playbook, uh, you get to choose different, um, aspects of your settlement. Uh, and there are different tags. Um, apocalypse world has a series of basically, um, descriptive tags that they add to things like guns or thing like just, uh, your gang or your settlement or your nightclub or your pistol or whatever it is that describes things about it. Maybe it's loud. Maybe your gang is unruly, what have you. But so as you're going through and creating your settlement, you're able to decide different things about it that add tags. And those tags could be positive or could be negative. There's a uh, an option you can choose that gives your settlement a, a market. And the benefit is that it gives you more money. Um, and gives you more resources to work with. But also there are strangers who come in and out of your settlement all the time. That could be great. could be awful. So the game is really also sort of oriented towards making positive things into, into a double-edged sword, but also related to what you just said, Nick, I, I think what's interesting is that there aren't a lot of mechanics that, so like, for example, in D and D you have a movement speed. Um, and let's say you're walking through a dungeon and you get your leg caught in a bear trap. The DM might say, okay, your movement speed is zero in apocalypse world. You just narrate out what happens. And I think that that's really cool. You're not filtering storytelling through a game mechanic necessarily. You're just sort of saying, this is what happens. And then if you need to roll dice, you need to roll dice, but it's a negotiation about who is narrating as opposed to, you know, we're going to, we're going to see if you roll a dexterity saving throw to get out of it or whatever. Um, yeah, this is this is a system that pushes hard against those kind of like wargaming roots that D&D has, because there would be 
no point at all to like getting out a grid and one inch miniatures for a game of apocalypse world it just doesn't work that way um yeah so even if you know you did get your leg caught in a bear trap in apocalypse world probably as a result of either failing or getting one of those mixed successes on say trying to sneak into somebody else's hold um then the mc or the player would just narrate okay this is the situation and then the mc has to present a new like this is the narrative development that you now have to respond to or maybe the depending again on the move that led to that maybe the player creates the narrative development that they have to respond to i also think um going back a little bit talking about like the playbooks and how they're structured and the difference between a dm and the mc um something that i find really fascinating about the books is that the the mc has a playbook and like there are certain things that the mc can and can't do um which are not like there is a psionic and it uses a mental blah 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 that has a 14 to hit, i don't know whatever um, plus 14 to hit plus 14 to hit um oh, no. and then like you roll this damage and instead the moves are stuff like uh separate the group grab a person um and stuff like that which i think is really interesting and um the bakers also go out of their way to say like do not announce your moves um, use the moves to move the narrative. And I think that's really fascinating is that they're giving you a toolkit in like, here's how you can make these people's lives interesting. See how they respond, but like prod them, don't force them into a thing. Do not confront them with uh, a thing, confront them with a situation. Yeah, I think the the game is really so much about player agency that, yeah, the MC is encouraged you know, give them, give them a choice. It might not be a great choice. It might be a, cho- you know, a choice between a rock and a hard place, but it's about offering them something that, that they are able to find a way out of or something that they can, you know, pivot and do something else. Um, it's occurring to me. It is, it is a lot harder to run these games than it is to run a game of D and D in my opinion. Um, it requires a, a much more facile person to be able to keep track of all of these different, very, I think, subtle dynamics. You're paying attention constantly to the hints that your players are dropping about what they're interested in. You know, you, you're making note of things that they're latching onto, and you're also not able to fall back on minis and game mechanics and monsters with stats. You know, I think, I think it requires a really good storyteller it requires somebody who is really, really good at improvising more so than a, than a D&D DM. You know, I think the biggest responsibility of a D&D DM is to know the rules. And here that is not hard um, to know what the rules are. So I think it, it, re- it requires a person who is really comfortable not having a lot figured out and responding in the moment to to what people are interested in. Because the the other option if you aren't able to do that is to prepare a crazy amount of content for every single possible contingency, which is not realistic. I do think something that the bakers um, do well is they offer or like instruct the MC to turn questions back on the players 
as often as possible to like flesh in those things so that the master of ceremonies doesn't have to be as inventive. Um, and so I found it interesting looking at um, some of the scenarios that were laid out um, that instead of just describing what X looks like, what uh, someone's hold looks like that you've just broken into, um, giving like some detail and then saying like, oh, what do you think it looks like? Like, oh, it does look like that thing. Exactly. That's where we're going, um, which I think also works in this more collaborative group devising sort of a situation, which I find really interesting about the system um, and how it works as a group telling a story as opposed to a storyteller showing a story to a group of players, which I think some not really great D&D devolves into. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it is... um... I, I agree that I love the kind of collaborative world building and, and collaborative storytelling that the game encourages. I The thing I find kind of fascinating about the MC's playbook in this is that I, I in some ways, I, and I, sh- I should say, I have not MC'd a game of Apocalypse World. Um, I would like to now that I've, I've read the book, but I haven't had the chance to do it. But I actually find the... I find my impulses butting up against the um, the kind of way that it's framed in that there's this kind of division where they say, on the one hand, you, the MC, also need to stick to the rules and here are your moves. At the same time, a lot of the moves feel like they're just um, they're, they're just stating interesting narrative choices, you know, like separate the players, take away a resource, um, that that kind of thing. And I think that's very smart on the one hand because it takes what could become a very like open kind of improv narrative experience and gives it a little more uh, game teeth for uh, people for whom that's how they approach the game. On the other hand, I feel like I would struggle to keep track of what I'm allowed to do in specific situations Despite the fact that most of them are like feel like fairly natural, um, you know, narrative choices that I might arrive at anyway, if the statement was just like, if they fail this type of role, you decide what happens, <laughs> you know. I mean, I think the game sets you up really well, though. Like, I what I really like um, are the tools that it gives you as the MC to, at the very least, establish like what you have to to work from. Um, the game gives you. Um, a threat map, which is sort of a, a worksheet for you fill in uh, the the characters and their resources, and then you sort of start to imagine based on the world that you've created together. Okay, what you know, what problems exist in this world? How might they affect the characters? And then from there, you're encouraged to make what they call fronts, um, which is essentially you choose uh, a fundamental scarcity, and then you start to imagine threats and their the, the motives of the people behind the threats or the agenda of the threat um and then present that to to your players like i think it gives you a really good system for working through on a macro scale what you're presenting to people and then i think it is fairly intuitive in the moment because i i think it, it puts you in the position of being a player in the sense that you're just in a scene reacting as you would if you were that character like i, I think it is in many ways just an exercise in being responsive to a scene partner. 
I think the other thing that's really interesting about the fronts, and as someone who's tried to build stuff like this in D&D, but without the language to do it, or like the resources in the book to do it. Oh, I'm definitely um, stealing this for D&D. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, uh, the bakers also talk about like a threat clock. Um, there's like a countdown clock that's constantly going on. And so like, if you, if you're, players are being assaulted on multiple fronts and like assaulted isn't specifically just like physical but like if there's something going on in the junkyard on the other side of town or if there's um there was smoke on the horizon and there's refugees heading towards the settlement um and the players choose not to deal with those things um they still progress and so like how do they progress and with what speed do they progress if left unchecked um, is a really interesting mechanic to build into the Master of Ceremonies side of things that like is encouraged to be prepared even if the players don't act on it. And then you can choose whether that's the narrative that seems the most interesting or uh, the one that will be more most fruitful for your players like oh yeah we wanted to go over here to watch some fights but also there was an explosion outside 20 minutes ago and we didn't really do anything about that should we be worried um is a really interesting thing to build mechanics for um yeah yeah i see people give that advice to dms and D all the time is like remember that your players aren't the center of the universe and the world goes on without them but i think D is set up in such a way that like it's really really easy to just forget about that and not worry about it um so it's nice to have a mechanic here uh, especially because i think this in this game the players are not the center of the of the universe in the way that or rather the characters are not the center of the universe in the way that they are in D&D. The players are the most important part. Like, you know, the, the system is built to serve the players. But the characters are really intentionally, I think, not the most important thing in the in the story, I think. I think the world is intended to be, you know, the most important place and the characters happen to live there and they happen to be the people that we're focusing on. Although I find funny about that and I, I, I wonder if the... um if this ties to what we were talking about earlier in terms of games where there's a lot of like high risk and backstabbing might need more trust is that at least in my experience with D and D oftentimes that advice about like, remember the world goes on without the players also kind of comes down to like, remember that's okay for your players to fail. And you know, like as much as, uh, we all like that, um, you know, the kind of graded success failure mechanic in this, you know, a lot it, like that on a kind of much bigger macro scale is like, if you don't go deal with this sort of thing, because you mistakenly think your characters are the center of the universe, like bad things can happen like those like those choices <laughs> choosing not to go address something in a timely fashion can be a choice that leads to potentially disastrous consequences and one of the mc's moves is like future bad things right yeah it's like well, discuss future bad things yeah. that are on the horizon which i think is so like narratively very cool i don't know i 
I get lots of tingles about this game. I think there's a lot of like fun threads to pull at um, that given the open-ended nature of it uh, makes it very appealing to say like, okay, here's how you can get things back on track or like here's how um, things can follow these whims or those whims is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think what is what is cool in the thread of um, don't be afraid to let your players fail, like this game is kind of set up to like, you're just waiting for them to fail. Um, <laughs> like in Apocalypse World, you mark experience that goes towards improving your character when you roll a failure. There is no scaling of the dice rolls. There is no advantage or disadvantage. There is no changing difficulty class based on how hard something is. The results will always mean what they mean. Um, and I am not a statistician or a probability mathematician but i'm pretty sure statistically it is less likely to roll between a 10 and a 12 than it is to roll in one of the um number ranges that indicate some level of failure it depends i think on what your modifier is like the average roll of 2d6 is seven which but the puts modifiers you like right are also there. a there are when you choose stats in, in apocalypse world they give you a set of four to choose from um and Almost always the option that gives you a plus three in what is considered your most important stat means that you have a minus in a different one. And because there are only, you know, there are, there are not that many stats um, and the numbers never get very big. I think the highest any modifier can be is plus three. Yep. Um, yeah. So, you know, you're not ever padding your the high, with the highest modifier you can have. If you roll on average, you will always succeed, but that will never happen you will never always right. roll the average yeah, <laughs> um, yeah 2d6 is not a very steep curve <laughs> it's just bent upward in the middle slightly yeah but i think anyway all the like i think the the system is is set up to reward failure and i think that this system really thrives on encouraging trying stuff and failing and focusing on relationships because one of the other ways or the other the other two ways that you can mark experience uh, and improve your character have to do with changing hick scores. If you max out or min out your hick score with another character, you mark experience. Or uh, when you originally choose those scores, the person with the highest hicks on your sheet gets to choose a stat to highlight for you whenever you roll in that stat, as well as another one that the MC chooses for you. Uh, you mark improve. You mark towards improvement. You know, I, I think the the system is very clearly rewarding playing into relationship building and playing into you know, not like I, I think this game falls apart if you have the kind of people who go into the Tomb of Horrors in D&D &D and check every single inch of wall with an investigation check and, you know, are don't want to do anything because they're worried about getting hurt. Um, like this, this game falls apart if you don't have people who are willing to just try stuff and do stuff. I one thing I love about it is I love what happens uh, if you do fail in really dire circumstances because unlike in D&D where the main mechanic the main like mechanical incentive to take care of yourself is your hit points and if you fail you might die and that's usually like in terms of game mechanics that's kind of the main lever the GM has to push um, that isn't purely narrative but in this 
when you when your harm countdown has counted all the way down, you don't die. Your life becomes untenable, which a I love as a phrase <laughs> um, and B, it gives you four choices, um, only one of which for what happens to your character, only one of which is they die. Um, you can also come back a little less uh, physically hardy than you used to be. You can come back a little weirder than you used to be or you can like uh change playbooks and change essentially your kind of career abilities um i love that mechanic i think that's very nice so to sort of kind of sum up our look at at mechanics um specifically and sort of sum up our our comparison to D&D if we're looking at moving from D&D into apocalypse world the sort of three big differences uh, are that this one has more of an emphasis on role-playing and relationships between PCs. There is this collaborative process of creating the story and setting at the table. So session zeros are much more important in uh, Apocalypse World than they are in D&D. Um, and then sort of this graded success or failure on a sliding scale as opposed to black and white, you succeed or you fail. Um, so those are sort of your big three um, differences in, in this new system that we're that we're embarking upon. And I think all of those actually are really things that we have all appreciated in playing and seeing this actual play as it has been so far. Um, you know, the narrative focus of Apocalypse World is really, really engaging. I mean, it, I was listening in during the session zero for our actual play, um, which we'll be releasing soon. And, and it was just like a real joy to listen to all of you, the players and John John, our master of ceremonies, build this world together. It was really cool to watch. I I will also say I love the scaling failure mechanic. I don't know if the bakers invented that per se, um, but certainly Apocalypse World, as far as I know and have heard, is one of the big games that really uh, popularized it and created it as a kind of core part of the system. I mean, it definitely it makes intuitive sense. And it's funny because I see a lot of D&D discourse that's about like, you know, oh, if they, you know, if they fail on a check, maybe in your narrative description of it, decide how much they succeed or fail. Or maybe, you know, if they really, really fail, then their lockpick breaks in the lock and they can't open it anymore or whatever yeah. it is. Like, I think people are starting to now apply this mechanic that makes a ton of intuitive sense um, because in the real world we succeed and fail by degrees. You know, if I trip and drop my phone on the ground, but the screen doesn't break, that's much better than accidentally dropping it down a flight of stairs and shattering it. Um, I hope I did not um, give myself bad karma <laughs> for later today. Um, you know, but I think, I think it, I see a lot of people now who are trying to apply this to D and D, but the system doesn't really accommodate it because there is still the question of, did you meet the DC or or not? And there are examples from very, very old D&D dungeons that are like, if they fail by five or more, this even worse thing happens. Or if they succeed by five or more, then, you know, they get this extra added thing. But that is, I think, a lot different than having sort of a gray area in which, you know, you, you get it, but at a cost. Yeah, I think the real thing that is innovative about that is, as Todd pointed to earlier, the swing in narrative agency. Like, it's one thing to say, okay, if you, like you just said, Percy, if you fail by more than five, you're not only going to fail to do what you want, but something else worse will happen. It's a whole other thing to say, if you succeed, 
you decide exactly what happens as a result of your action. Like that's a very that's a huge change from the sort of typical D20 system where the GM has sort of all the narrative power beyond the players deciding what to do with a situation. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's the thing that I love most about the system, sort of similar to what you were mentioning earlier, um, you know, without getting into specifics as we were playing our first session of Apocalypse World. It was so much fun to be in, a, in an environment where we were all just yes ending each other and to be able to go into that session zero without a really solid idea of what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be and then come out of it with um, these really deep character relationships that make a lot of sense um, and being feeling empowered to say to another player in a way that I don't think I would feel in D&D to say, oh, maybe we've been best friends since we were children or, you know, maybe I have a paternal relationship towards you and that offer not feeling railroady or like I, th- I think in D I would feel like I was forcing myself on that on that person or if I, I, I feel like I was overstepping somehow I think to suggest some kind of relationship or connection between characters but I think in Apocalypse World A it sets up an environment where you're just kind of pitching stuff and you f- see what feels right and see what doesn't um, which I think lends itself to making bigger swings like that but also it just absolutely rewards building those relationships um, and incentivizes them. So I feel a lot more encouraged to figure out what that is. Um, Cause it's also more interesting to have a party of players who know each other and have relationships with each other to build off of. And it, it gives you structure for that process, which I, I think is, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people I think do play D and D games like that where they do that sort of thing in session zero but it's immensely it's one thing for it to be like a kind of accepted practice in a game's culture and a very different thing for it to be built into the rule book as like here is how the first session of your game should go i mean even like i did a in the in the beginning of our D adventure i did a really really tiny version of this but it wasn't a negotiation it was just sort of you know, imagine this and the other player, you know, was in kind of in a position to accept it. Um, you know, it wasn't a back and forth, uh, which I think led a lot of people to choose things that are sort of small or focused only on their character's perception of the other character. So I think it is a lot better to have a system that encourages spending a ton of time investing in this. Well, and I think because the because the character creation also makes us ask and answer things for each other it does feel much more communal whereas D and other in a similar vein these like power fantasy games are so inwardly focused as the character of the player as in creation as opposed to this much more communal like how do these people all exist together They don't all have to be friends, but they do all have to have a relationship to each other. They don't all have to be nice, but they do need to know how to work around each other. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, that maybe actually points me at I don't know if this is a criticism per se, but a, a question I'm curious to hear the answer to, because you've 
both played todd you've played some pbta games no before. i've only listened no this is oh, okay. yeah i'm just oh, no well, he just right. loves masks i really love masks i i thought you had played masks you're just a huge masks fanboy okay yes <laughs> okay amazing well then i guess a question just for percy um that that maybe leads into i did wonder reading the book and i've been wondering this still um in the pbta games you've played do you feel a solid sense of like overcoming obstacles or a character kind of growing in ability or do you think that that takes like a backseat to the communal and more like characterological development i definitely like i don't necessarily feel a strong sense of like like in, Ap- like in Apocalypse World, as you improve your character, you can add to your stat modifiers, but only up to a certain amount uh, and only certain ones, depending on your playbook. It is a lot more focused on you can choose new moves that give you different narrative options. Um, mm-hmm. So I think because the other piece of it, too, I think is that d and I think is oriented toward like you're supposed to succeed, whereas I think Apocalypse World and other powered by the apocalypse games often are this sort of like staving off the inevitable, terrible thing that happens. Like, I, I think there is, I think the arc is different. Yeah. Like I, I think many, especially like one shot powered by the apocalypse games, which are most of what I've played tend to be, we're all figuring things out at the beginning and then suddenly something terrible happens and we all have to figure out how to deal with it. Um, or as in D and D, I think it's very much, we identify a problem and then we go encounter it. Uh, and then we come back home and hang out in the tavern. Yeah, I, th- I think improvement is a lot more about narrative opportunity than it is about f- improving as a character in the way that when you level up in D&D, like I think getting new moves is different from, you know, getting your extra attack as a fighter or, you know, getting the ability as a monk that makes you immune to disease and poison. You know, like I think it's yeah, those are about mechanics and this is about narrative. Um I think moving a little bit more into, we've talked about things we love about the game. Uh, I would love to hear some things that we feel a little bit uh, of mixed opinion about in the game. What a delicate way to put that. I will present for everybody's consideration that there is a playbook called Battle Babe, which not only is called Battle Babe, but also has the option to take a move where they get more... uh, like powerful and actually harder to hurt if they are wearing less clothing. Yep. Um, yeah. That's that's a thing. <laughs> that's a thing in this game. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of the classes are gendered in a way that is very weird and uh plays into stereotype. Battle Babe is a great example. See also the very male coded language of like the chopper and the driver and the gun lugger. Um like the battle babe is very clearly positioned as like, if you want to play a girl fighter, this is the one you have to be. Um, I would in a slight, and I don't think they necessarily deserve this in a slight defense. I would argue that babe can be gender neutral, but is very clearly gendered in the illustrations and the language used in the playbook. Um, well, the, but like you could be options. a really hot dude in very little clothing I was with a machete say, 
And the game perfectly supports that, but it doesn't exactly claim that that's what it's trying to do in this moment. And then we can also talk about like how fucked up the gender component is in this game because it's weird and different for different I'm going to play my transgender card. Uh, it's really fucked, the gender options that it gives you. Um, in case you are unfamiliar, the gender options, by and large, that you can choose from, depending on what playbook you're choosing, it is also very weird that some of these are not available for certain um, playbooks. What um, is that about? Sorry, continue. <laughs> generally, you can choose between man, woman, ambiguous, transgressing, or concealed. Um Ah, yes, the five genders. (laughs) Uh, Yes. (laughs) I, yeah, we're not, we don't have time to unpack all of that. Um, (laughs) To toss a John Mulaney reference in there. But uh, yeah, to say, to say the obvious, um, this is very clearly incredibly binary. Uh, It positions non-binary people as sitting in between men and women, which is not what non-binary is. by by name alone, it is independent of the gender binary. I don't know what they're trying to say with the phrase transgressing. Um, but if that's what they mean by a binary trans person, speaking as a binary trans person, I have a problem with that. Um, and what is concealed? And why is gender presentation so important to them? Well, and... We we had talked about this slightly before offline. It seems like, given concealed and ambiguous, that um, the what is being described is not gender, but instead gender presentation, um, which is and an entirely gender, separate yeah. thing. You can absolutely have a transgressing gender presentation. Look at any butch lesbian. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, emo bands from the early aughts. Um, Even better example. <laughs> Although hair metal. The- hair metal, very transgressive, really cool. Although given the post-apocalyptic, collaboratively created setting, the question becomes transgressing against what and <laughs> how. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, it's very weird to give these kind of edgelordy options that are, I think written in a way that is supposed to sound progressive. Um, like I think the better option is just to say like, choose whatever gender you want and whatever gender presentation you want. Yeah. Um, I, I do think it's so to- baffling that some genders are unlocked by certain playbooks and not others and that is weird like that and it's mostly just concealed like only certain playbooks can conceal their gender which is also baffling and just like doesn't i don't understand that in my brain i don't understand how some people wear masks or hoods or bulky clothing and other people can or do not well i was gonna say i'll bet i'll bet a lot of money and i was right that the Battle Babe does not have concealed as an option. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. I, yeah. Sorry to get very much on my soapbox for a second. But yeah, like, I, I oh, think I that this good. is very much trying to, trying to do something interesting with gender, but at the cost of like actual transgender and non binary and genderqueer and GNC people. Um, I am heartened to say our cast for Paco's World, mostly trans. Uh, and non-binary so we are 
Hundo P queering the shit out of this, uh, out of these playbooks. Well, and a hundred percent queer, the, like the team is all queer, which is also great. Um, whether that's in gender presentation or not, like, um, I think that that's, yeah, I don't know. There's just, yeah. Like the coding of the, of the way that the, that the handbook is written is very cisnormative. It is very heteronormative. Um, it very much adheres to the stereotype of like strong women being like babes in bikinis who carry assault rifles. Like, like it, yeah. Nothing stronger than getting yourself shot by not wearing <laughs> armor. Well, I would, I would also say in the, um, and I, I know I leapt to a defense like this for D and D with its like Lord of the Rings trappings and the problematics within that go unchecked. I feel like there's a number of problematics that this pulls from that are directly from Mad Max and other apocalyptic. Um, kind of vibes that like yeah the the women in those tend to be battle babes they tend to be like scantily clad weapons experts um which is not a forgiveness but an acknowledgement like that that's what they were trying to build and they did but it also has problematic aspects is the thing that we needed like they successfully built the thing and it's problematic yeah, and I mean that's also not to say that you can't have women in any of the other playbooks, but yeah, like, it's just I think that the game's relationship to gender is weird and not great. Um, I also I know that Nick, this is a sticky thing for you that you don't like at all. Um, I think the game has a really specific mechanic for sex and for relationships, and it gamifies relationships um, in in a way that I think can be tricky. But I will cede the floor. Oh, well, I was just so I think there's two things that make me twitchy about it. I think number the first thing that I have complicated feelings about is maybe more of a setting thing, which is that so all of the classes, uh, all sorry, all of the playbooks um, have a special move that they can activate when they have sex with someone specifically another person like another player no some of them a lot of them say this has no effect if you have sex with an npc but some of them do some of them trigger even if they're having sex with an npc um and i i you know i don't have a problem with sex being a like active part of the game um, I think the setting thing that just rubs me the wrong way about it is that I do feel like many of them frame sex as this exploitative thing. Yeah. And I and I think that is maybe just a that aspect of it is maybe just a, um, you know, this is maybe not the like game with the baked in setting for me of like, you know, this Mad Max, everybody is an enemy. Everything is transactional. It's just not a world I love. I mean, I, I do agree with you, especially in the sense that, like, this is a thing that applies every single time. And for example, um, in the hard holder playbook, every time my character has sex with somebody, you're able to give them the game equivalent of money. Um, and that is inherently making every sexual encounter very transactional. Although you um, do not have to give them money. I, will I guess I, I guess I don't. But it it's very like it it's weird. That is a weird it it makes me feel as a player a little boxed in. 
and I have circumvented this by playing a character who is probably asexual, but, but also, yeah, I, and I, and I think it is a little like there, um, there's a playbook called the brainer, which is kind of like a, like a, like a psychic mind ready, uh, type of class. Um, and you can, you have access to moves that let you like read people's minds or figure things out about them in the description of these moves. Um, it talks about if you're sharing physical intimacy with somebody and it gives you a consensual example and a non-consensual example. And maybe this is me being too PC. I don't think that that should, I don't think the non-consensual example should be an option. Like I, th- I think there are some options available to you that have to do with like mental coercion and like things like that, that also sort of tread a weird line. I think that there's some things that like, I'm not familiar with all of the sex moves and I glossed over a number of them after a while, but some of them, I was just like, I just, you know, I'm not playing this game right now. I just need to understand how the system works. Um, but a number of them, like you, you change history. Yeah. Like, that was going to be what I brought up. And that I think is interesting that like in, in exploring this intimate thing with another person, you learn some things about them as a mechanic is like, that's interesting to me. I also think that like, um, there's a lot of scudginess that people feel just about the fact that there is a sex mechanic in general. And to that, I would say like, most adults generally have sex at some point and like we don't feel scoogey about murder mechanics that we have in most role-playing games despite the fact that like most people will not murder a person statistically like in general most people won't do that to another person and most people will have sexual relations with another person. I think the thing that's weird uh, or like weirder about having a sex mechanic is that while many people have sexual relations during their lives, um, it is not often something that one does in a group or discusses in a group setting per se. Um, And I think that is the like in a puritanical American way is part of what makes people very scoogey about the fact that there is a mechanic to begin with. I think that like, as people who are socialized in America, um, there are certain things that we are expected to have polite conversation about and certain things that we are not expected to have polite conversation about. And so by having this mechanic, it force it, it doesn't force, but it like encourages the possibility of having this kind of a conversation with an intimate group of friends in a way that one might not otherwise, especially during a game of something else like Dungeons and Dragons or Dread. Um, It's just like, this is not a thing that comes up at the table normally. And by making it a thing that can come up at the table, it forces us to contemplate it in a way that I think makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I 100% agree with you, Todd. I just, I, I think one of the things that I continue to feel strange about that Percy pointed to earlier is that in a game that prioritizes player agency so much the sex moves take away a lot of player agency over what the nature of a character's sex life and the relationships that develop from that is Mm -hmm. i think it's i think it's perhaps poorly managed Mm -hmm. but i think if 
I just want to make sure that we're we're looking at the delineation between like there being a sex mechanic, sure, and there being a sex mechanic that is well executed that is, or poorly yeah, executed. And I think that's what I want to make sure we're talking about is that like it's kind of a bummer that it works in this specific fashion and feels so transactional, et cetera, is a thing that I think is like totally worthy of critique. And I also think it's worthy of critique to discuss like why include or not include this sort of a mechanic. But I don't know. I'm just thinking about like to go entirely in a theater direction here for a second. Um, On Dungeons and Drama Nerds? On Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Um, But like all of Naomi Wallace's plays involve some form of sexual act that is often perpetrated on stage in front of the audience. And for some people, this makes them like very, very uncomfortable. Like why does Naomi Wallace need to go out of her way to have sex or sexual content on stage in all of her plays? What's up with that? And to that, I would answer like, it's a thing that most people do. Like nobody is mad about Hamlet going on a murder spree. Everyone (laughs) is in fact on his side for all of that. But if Hamlet had a liaison with Ophelia in the middle of act three, everyone would be really upset. And we would talk about that play in a very different manner. Um, And I think that has something to say about how our culture views sex and sexuality and what the appropriateness of putting those things into a narrative are. Um, And I just want to like flag that. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think what it really means is that this mechanic requires like just a conversation at the outset of a game with like, how do we as a group want to handle that? Because I do think that it is very real that like that might not necessarily be a thing you want to role play with your friend. Um, Yep. Which I think is, which I think is valid. But also, yeah, I I think I have no issue with the fact that there inherently is a sex mechanic. I think it I think some of the moves are a little problematic. Uh, I think in a worst case scenario, it incentivizes having sex with NPCs and other characters for like character improvement, which is weird. Um, I like the way that Monster Hearts does it a lot better. But Monster Hearts also has it has a mechanic that is similar to but different than Hicks which is uh in Monster Hearts you have strings which are essentially like a little bit of leverage on a player um so a lot of the sex moves in Monster Hearts have to do with someone else gaining a string on you or you gaining a string on somebody else it's like a piece of information that you can use to influence um a role uh interacting with that character um I'm not explaining it super well but you get you get the point like I I think Hicks is an imperfect system to apply to this specific thing um, because Hicks is also intended to be like how well you know someone and that's not necessarily related to having sex with them. I mean, you know, it it could be live your life. I don't I don't care what you do. I don't care who you sleep with. But (laughs) this is a family friendly podcast. Uh, Well, I'm getting explicit. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that it is, I, I think in general, my sort of, I guess, like closing thought on the, on this game is that this is a game that, um, invites you to explore things that are difficult to talk about or circumstances and situations that are difficult to live in. Um, so I think it is a, a game that requires you to be really intentional about what you as a player can and cannot handle and what you as a player are interested in exploring, because on one hand, 
this game offers you like a really safe uh, harmless place to be like well, what if i was in the apocalypse and had to fight monsters or you know what if i was the leader of a of a settlement and then i somebody mutinied or whatever uh, but on the other hand you could very much be exposed to something that uh, is harmful to you or hurtful to you. And I think it just is a game that you need to go into with a lot of intentionality in terms of like telling other people at the table, this is what I, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm definitely super not interested in. And I think there is a way to play the game without engaging the sex mechanic. If something about it is not great to you. Totally. Yeah. You could, I mean, you can just not, you just not do, do it. it. <laughs> like nothing, nothing is preventing you from just ignoring the that section of the playbook. So. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been great, and we're excited to dive into Apocalypse World starting next week. See you then. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at dndramanerds. Check out our cast bios on our website, dungeonsanddramanerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.